0: I want to open us with a question this morning. Give us something to think about as we go into this text. And that is this. Who in your life are you tempted to hate? Who in your life are you tempted to hate? Perhaps it's someone who has hurt you deeply, a close friend or a family member who has betrayed you in the past and that bitterness just seeps up almost constantly every time you see them and then and then other times when you're alone with your thoughts. You have this bitterness, this, this anger that wells up. Maybe, maybe it's not something that dramatic, but maybe just someone who rubs you the wrong way. Someone that you just don't like. He doesn't act like you, doesn't think like you, doesn't talk like you, doesn't vote like you, doesn't listen to the same music you like, or watch the TV shows that you like, or cheer for the sports teams that you like. Somebody you just, you know, I, we wouldn't say I hate them, but it would just be best if they weren't around. And maybe you say, you know, hate's a strong word, but is it okay? Do I have to like everybody? Like, I know Jesus says, love your neighbor, but does he say like everyone? Does this something that I really have to worry about? What does Jesus have to say about those people and how we interact with those people, however you define them? Well, Jesus said something that would come as a great surprise to many of the people of his day, to the people that gathered to hear him preach What they heard sounded like something shocking, something unexpected. I want to say that despite how familiar we might be in the church with the words we're going to hear from Jesus this morning, they still have the potential to shock us as well. If you've been in the church all of your life, and if this seems familiar to you, I want to ask you to, to sit back and try to hear it fresh this morning. Let these words pack the punch that they would have to the people who first heard them. And as we're going to examine what Jesus is calling us to, perhaps even more importantly, we're going to look at why he's calling us to it. Why it's important that we follow this path that he puts before us. And I think it's going to become clear as we do that this is no optional tier for high-level super-Christians. This is what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Quite frankly, it's part and parcel with what it means to follow Jesus Christ that we are to love our enemies. It's core to what it means to follow him, to follow the one who loved his un- enemies even unto death. So join me in Matthew 5. We're going to read together verses 43 through 48 and then we'll dive in and study it together. Matthew 45 Jesus says, "You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray as we study it further. Our God and Father, we ask this morning as we come to your word with open eyes, open ears, open hearts, we ask that what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, we are not, you would make us by the power of your Spirit to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake, amen. All right, well, if you've been here with us lately for our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you're likely familiar by now with the pattern that Jesus' teaching has taken, the pattern that we saw once again this morning. So he's talking about this higher kingdom ethic, what it looks like if we're going to be his followers, how we are called to a higher righteousness, a greater righteousness, a more true righteousness that goes beyond even the most religious and respected people of Jesus' day. He points them to the scribes and the Pharisees, what they would have thought of as the most holy people in society, and he says, if you're going to be in my kingdom, you have to go higher than that. You have to be more righteous than that, and it's taken on this pattern that we've seen week by week of, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, and that's the pattern that we follow again this morning. Most recently, last week, Pastor Todd led us in looking at why retaliation and retribution aren't the way that Jesus expects his followers to respond to personal wrongs. And that theme is going to kind of continue today. Last week, we talked about how to respond to these wrongs, what happens if someone strikes you on the cheek or takes your tunic or your cloak. This week, we're looking at those people who might do such things to us. How do we respond to enemies? How are we to treat those who are not in our good graces for whatever reason? And Jesus is going to summarize the approach of his culture here once again with a, you have heard it said, but it's a little bit different this go around. Because usually, if you think back through the past several weeks, when he gives the you have heard it said, it's generally a quote from the Old Testament law. And usually what's happened is God has said something through his word to his people, but over time they have reinterpreted, sometimes very creatively, in order to get out from under the thrust and the punch of what it is God is calling them to. But most of the time when Jesus says you've heard it said, he's quoting what God actually said. This week though, he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But, so the question comes from, where did they hear that said? Because unlike those other texts, we can dig all the way through the Old Testament, looking for some place where God calls us to love our neighbor and hate our enemy, and you're going to be looking for quite some time. This is not an Old Testament quotation. So where did it come from? Well, the first part, it's, it's easy to know where they got that from. Uh, that we're, we're to love our neighbor. That much does come out of the Old Testament law. Leviticus 19.18, God says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is later on going to call this the second greatest commandment in all the law. If you were to sum up all the Old Testament teaching, It would be, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So it's it's clear where they heard that said. They got that straight from God's law. But where did they get the hate your enemy part? Well, they creatively redefined neighbor to basically mean pleasant people that they had no quarrels with. Who is my neighbor? Well, my neighbor is really anyone that I want it to be. Any nice people, good God-fearing Jews like me, who I don't mind being around. And we see that attitude and how prevalent it had become in society. It pops up later on in Jesus' dealing uh, in the Gospel of Luke, where he leads into the story of the Good Samaritan. We're all probably familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, the, the occasion where that parable comes out is Jesus is talking with someone, uh, who is asking, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus answers, Luke 10:26 through 29. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Straight A's for this guy. He's got it fantastic. That's, he sums up the whole of the law and the prophets in those two commands. And so how does the guy respond with a question? But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So there's the million-dollar question. I have to love my neighbor as myself. Well, I can do that as long as I get to pick who my neighbor is. So they had taken this command to love your neighbor, and they had basically said I get to pick who my neighbor is, I follow that command, and I can get away with not liking and not acting with love toward other people. I can love my neighbor and hate my enemy. But this isn't how it goes, right? We can't pick and choose who gets to be our neighbor. That's the point that Jesus is going to make in the story of the Good Samaritan. And that's the reality of the Old Testament law. Theologian John Calvin put it this way. He said, God assures us that all men are our brethren, because they are related to us by a common nature. Whenever I see a man, I must of necessity behold myself as in a mirror, for he is my bone and my flesh. All people are people. We can't pick and choose who gets to be my neighbor and who's not because all of us share a nature, a human nature. We are all brothers, sisters. We are all sons and daughters created by God in his world and despite the many bad roads that many of us choose to walk down the many paths of rejection and rebellion against God that we walk down we still share a commonality we're still people in need of God's grace and so as we behold others we don't get to say are you my neighbor are you my neighbor everyone is my neighbor and that means my command from God is to love everybody. But that's not the reality of our world. That's not the reality Jesus is speaking into here, and it's not the reality that we live with today. It's still the way our culture thinks. Now, we might not say it quite as boldly, right? As good church-going people, we would never say, well, I can love my neighbor and hate my enemy. Like, we, we know the words and we know the rules a little bit too well for that. But We live in a quid pro quo society, right? We live in a world where you do for me and I do for you. When people are kind to us, we know we should be kind in return. But what if they're not? What if they're rude? What if they're mean? They've wounded us in some way. They're on the other side of a political or social debate. And we may not say we hate them we definitely don't feel any obligation to do good to them. We definitely don't feel like we need to go out of our way to love them, to desire their good, their flourishing. We still play the who is my neighbor game today. We might not vocalize it. We might not say it out loud. We might not uh, say it to other people, but we still are tempted to play this game. If you've earned my good graces by being nice to me, and the most holy of us might say, well, even if, if you've been neutral, you're a stranger on the street, then I know I should treat you well. But if you've wronged me or you've wronged my team, my tribe, my club, then we're done. Any obligation is gone. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And you and I have heard it said that way today. Maybe not in quite so explicit a term, but that's the way that our culture lives. If you're on my team, I'll go to bat for you. If you're not, then at best, we're just going to pretend you don't exist. Even if, or or at worst, I'm going to desire that I want to see you down, out, whatever the case may be. So that's the present reality that we live in. Quid pro quo. You do for me, I do for you. Love my neighbor, and I get to pick who my neighbor is. But Jesus calls us to something completely different. Right? Verse 44. But I say to you... Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This would have been a surprise to the people who heard this. It shouldn't have been, but it was. You shall love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Feel the gut punch with that one. Feel the weight of that calling. What does he mean when he says that? Well, he means that we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, who seek our downfall. And I don't think he means to pray that fire will rain down from heaven and consume them. The disciples tried that one. Didn't work out so well. If you're hoping for a creative reinterpretation that will make love mean something other than love, sorry, you're not going to find it here. Jesus doesn't give us an out. He doesn't give us an off-ramp. He calls us to love our enemies. This is stop you in your tracks radical. Church folks, Don't let your familiarity with Jesus' words lull you into missing the impact of what he's calling us to here. This is a radical, hard, deep calling to love indiscriminately, to love my neighbor, to love my enemy, to pray for those who actively seek my downfall and destruction. Now, the first thing that happens when we hear something like this, when we hear a hard text, is we come, out, we come up with some whatabouts, right? But what about, but what about we, we think of the most out there scenarios that we can that will excuse us from following what Jesus is saying here. And I'm going to tell you this morning, save your whatabouts. Sit on them for a few minutes. We're going to deal with some of them at the end, but we don't get to say what about until we've sat under the weight of what Jesus is saying. Hear what he is saying. We're going to talk about some other things in the Bible that inform the way that we go about doing this, but first, hear what Jesus is saying right here, right now. And what's particularly notable is that he gives this big, bold command, and then he spends quite a bit of time explaining why we're to do it. The bulk of our text this morning is not the command, it's the explanation for the command. The reasoning, the rationale, the justification for it. So that tells me, and that tells us, if we're going to understand this command rightly, then we need to understand not only what we're supposed to do, but why we're supposed to do it. So a few reasons we're going to examine this morning for why we are supposed to love our enemies. Why we're supposed to pray for those who persecute us. And the first is very simple. It's so that we'll be like God. Love your enemies so that you'll be like God. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus cuts straight to the chase. We're to love our enemies so that we can be like God. And to show how this makes us like God, Jesus uses two examples, two illustrations of the way that God showers his love, pun partially intended, on good and evil people alike. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So Jesus says, Be like your Father, be like God, love your enemies, because he makes rainfall on the unjust and on the just. He makes the sun shine on the evil and on the good. God shows so much grace to everyone on this planet every single day that we absolutely take for granted. And he shows that grace indiscriminately to everyone from the most righteous, holy person, the most committed follower of Jesus that's out there on the planet. Somebody somewhere is the most committed follower of Jesus on the planet and he showers his grace on them and he showers his grace on the most heinous mass murderers on the planet. And that might seem odd to you at first. You think, Gee, does he really do that? But he absolutely does. Let me give you an illustration. So over the past couple of weeks, we've gone through spring break for a lot of people. And some of us and many of our friends have gone on vacation, right? Uh, we got to go down to North Carolina. I got to spend some time uh, hiking through the North Carolina mountains, seeing tremendous views, tremendous sights. I'd get on my Facebook or my Twitter over the last couple of weeks and see people posting pictures from the beach or, you know, there was a lot of beach pictures. Just these beautiful sunsets, sunrises, all of these things that just make you think, wow, And a lot of times we post that stuff, and we'll put a comment on there, right, about God's glory being expressed through creation. When you watch a a sunrise, when you see the ocean and hear the sound of the waves rolling, when you stand on a mountain and look out over creation, there is something in you that says, God did this, this is amazing, and this showcases, more so than even the mundane day-to-day, his greatness and his glory and his beauty, and it makes your heart swell. It's a blessing from God to be able to behold stuff like that. So I want you to consider this view that I'm going to show you, this uh, this house in Germany uh, that people refer to as the eagle's nest. Go ahead and put that picture up there for us. What a view is that? How would you like to wake up to that every day? If you saw that view, you would think, this is glorious. This is great. This is a blessing to be able to behold these rolling hills, these vast mountains. Like, what a grace it would be to be able to see that All of the time. Well, that was the personal retreat of one Adolf Hitler. Every time that Hitler beheld the wonder of that view, it was because God allowed him to see it. Hitler. You're going to be hard-pressed to find a more chilling name in all of the history of humanity. And Hitler got to wake up and see that. And every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, whether we recognize it or not. And that means that in looking out over that vista, that was a blessing, a common grace that God gave to Adolf Hitler. He allowed his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the good and on the evil. And beautiful mountain vistas are beheld by righteous and reprehensible alike. God loves his enemies. And he gives to them and to us graces and blessings that we just take for granted well that's just part of the natural world This is where you choose to live and god's not in that for hitler is it is he but the the bible tells us that he is so when jesus calls us to be like our father if god can do that for hitler why can't you do good to one you consider on the outside of your good graces We're arguing from the greater to the lesser. You would be hard-pressed. I mean, you you could throw out all the excuses in the world. Like, God expects me to do good for that person, but you don't know what they have did to me. You don't know how horrible of a person they are. Well, are they worse than Hitler? Really? I'm going to guess probably not. And so if God can give grace and blessing to him, then how can we not respond in kind, so that we may be sons of our Father who is in heaven, who makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, the just and the unjust. What this exposes is really the truth that we believe people have to earn our love. They have to earn our kindness. And the truth is anything but. Calvin again says, the love which God requires in his law looks not at what a man has deserved, but extends itself to the unworthy the wicked, and the ungrateful. Did you catch that? The love which God requires extends itself to the unworthy, the wicked, and the ungrateful. And this isn't just a new command that Jesus is pulling out of thin air. This has been there the whole time. We have this false idea of Old Testament God is full of anger and judgment and retribution, and New Testament God is full of love. It's bogus. This calling to love enemies is right there from the beginning, and Alex read a portion of it this morning in Exodus 23 for us. Exodus 23.5, If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. That's love your enemy, right? If you see the donkey of one who hates you, You don't just leave the guy to deal with it. You go and help him rescue it. Not only is that love your enemy, but I want you to look deeper. Because we think of love oftentimes in terms of sentimental feeling. That's not what's going on here. This is not a sentimental feeling. It is a love that determines to inconvenience self and practically act for the good of one who despises you when you're under no earthly obligation to do so. Think of the scenario that we're given here when you see the donkey of one who hates you borne down under its burden, Let's, let's 21st century translate, you see your worst enemy's car broken down on the side of the road, you shall go and help him get it going. Call the tow truck. You shall not leave him with it. So Jesus is using a scenario where it's not just that you're refraining from doing bad to somebody, but you're going out of your way to do good to them in a situation where it's none of your business. It's not your problem. This is the kind of love that God calls us to for our enemies. Love your enemies so that you will be like God who sends his rain, his sunshine on the just, the unjust, the good, or the evil. That's not the only reason that we're supposed to love our enemies, though. We are to love our enemies, secondly, so that we won't be like everyone else. That's where Jesus goes in verse 46. He calls us to love our enemies so we'll be like God, and then the flip side... Love love your enemies so you won't be like everyone else in the world. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Jesus is calling his followers higher. That's been the constant theme these past few weeks is, here's what you think, I'm raising the bar. You want to follow me? This is what true kingdom righteousness looks like. It's going to stand out from the crowd. It's going to exceed expectations. He's calling them to a righteousness that exceeds even the most pious and devout that they could conceive of. And frankly, everybody loves their friends, right? What makes that special? If that's all we do, if we just go along with the culture's expectation for love, and we love our neighbor as we define it, then how does that make us any different from anybody else? Jesus says if their love is limited to those who love them, they're no different from tax collectors. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now, this is a burn right here. We don't feel it quite the same way in our culture, but it was a a profound statement back then. See, we're not huge fans of the tax man. I I don't know if any of us know IRS agents, but they're probably not the favorite category of people we'd like to imagine. We don't like paying taxes. We don't like parting with our money. But the disdain that the Jews of Jesus' day would have had for tax collectors went well beyond what we think of in our culture. See, tax collectors, first off, they were traitors because the Jews weren't self-governed. Remember, they are under the authority, the occupation, the oppression of the Roman Empire, much to their chagrin. And so taxes are being collected not for their own government, but for the Romans who rule over them. And so if you're a tax collector, you're turning traitor on your own people to collect taxes for the foreign occupiers. And usually, those tax collectors would collect extra over the top to line their own pockets and make themselves rich. So they align themselves with the oppressors of their own people and get rich off of their backs. Not everybody's favorite people in the world. In fact, if you had asked a member of the crowd, listening to Jesus here, to name somebody who was the opposite of righteous, there's a pretty good chance somebody would have said tax collector. That's the level of standing that these people had in Jewish society. And Jesus says, even they love people who love them back. Even they love their friends. And then he says, if you greet only your brothers, verse 47, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? If you greet only your brothers then you're no different than the Gentiles. Now, the word here for greet, we think like, is this like waving hello to somebody as you pass in the street? Which, you know, if you're down south, you wave to absolutely everyone. If you are up north, you don't wave to anybody unless you know them. And Louisville is kind of, you never know what you're going to get. You might wave at somebody, and they wave back. You might wave at somebody, and they give you a death stare. This isn't that, though. This is more than just that kind of a greeting. The word here for greet is from the Greek aspatzomai, which besides being really fun to say... Uh, is also far more than a simple hello in the town square. The word means to welcome, to salute, to pay one's respect to. It is an extension, an expression of fellowship and brotherhood. When we talk about greeting somebody in this way, this is an expression of commonality, of fellowship. And Jesus says if they offer that attitude only to their brothers and to the Jews of his day, they would have understood brother to be Good, God-fearing Jews like me. If you greet only your brothers, then you're no different than the godless pagans that they look down on. Everybody likes their own tribe. Everybody likes their own people. Like, We went downtown for thunder the other night, and there's a lot of people who are... Nice people, and there's probably a lot of people in that crowd who are not nice people, but when they fly the flag across the river, everybody can chant USA together because everybody loves their country, everybody loves their people, their tribe. Jesus is saying, if you only love people who are in your club, then how are you any different from anybody else? That's natural. That's normal. That's what people do. God's people should be marked by a love that is distinct from what naturally happens in the world. That's the main point that he's making here by saying, don't be like everybody else. Plainly put, the kind of love that Jesus calls his followers to is a love that can only be explained by the gospel. No other explanation fits. Listen to this uh, quote from D.A. Carson, pastor, author, and scholar. Carson says, ideally... The church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural group, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in the light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That's what he's calling us to. That's the kind of love that we want to characterize the people who are following Jesus Christ. It's distinct from the world. It's something the world can't just recreate. I was reading a book on community in the local church uh, over the past couple weeks uh, by Jamie Dunlop, and it reminded me of a quote from his book where he's talking about this notion that we want to create community, and we want to create not just community that could be found anywhere, but something distinct and special that only happens because of the gospel. Listen to this. He says, let's say that a single mother joins my church. Who is she naturally going to build friendships with? Who is naturally going to understand her best? Other single moms, of course. So I encourage her to join a small group for single moms, and sure enough, she quickly integrates into that community and thrives. Mission accomplished, right? Not quite. What occurred is a demographic phenomenon and not a gospel phenomenon. Single moms gravitate to each other regardless of whether or not the gospel is true. Now, this community is wonderful and helpful, but its existence says nothing about the power of the gospel. Many relationships that form in our churches would exist even if the gospel weren't true. That's good, right, and helpful. But in addition, we should also aspire for many relationships that exist only because of the gospel. So often, we aim at nothing more than community built on similarity, I want us to aim at community characterized by relationships that are obviously supernatural. That's what loving your enemies looks like. When the world sees a group of people loving one another in community and they don't fit. They don't break down on racial lines, class lines, political lines, socioeconomic lines, whatever it might be. They don't fit together, but yet they are together. That says something about Christ. That says something about the gospel. The type of love and goodness that we show and who we show it to should confound the categories and the expectations of our watching world. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. In summary, in verse 48, Jesus gives us the last reason the last reason. That we should love our enemies because we should look like our dad we should bear a family resemblance to the father you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect if jesus has made us into children of god by his life and death and resurrection then we should look like and we should love like our dad does That's the the full summary statement. This is a summary of Jesus' teaching on the topic of love for enemies here in verse 48. But I'm going to suggest to you, verse 48 is also a capstone, it's also a summary statement of everything he's been saying so far in chapter 5. Because remember, we, we began this section, this series in the Sermon on the Mount, with his challenging statement that in order to enter his kingdom, our righteousness has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Here's the most righteous you can imagine. you got to go higher than that. And over the past several weeks, in the past several verses, we've been watching him raise the bar in this area, in one area after another. Here's how you need to go higher. Here's what true righteousness looks like. And now we are finally seeing what the bar is, right? We've seen him raising the bar. Here we're told the bar is God. The bar is God himself. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. If we're going to follow Jesus, who is God in the flesh, then the righteousness that we're striving after will be his righteousness. It'll be God's righteousness. That's what's what it means to follow. We are pursuing the path that he has laid in front of us. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so while you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy Christ says to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so the takeaway question for us this morning do you love like this do you love like this do you love your enemies do you pray for those who persecute you? Do you desire and actively pursue their good? Love here is not just a sentimental nice feeling that you get, but this is a a volitional choice. Remember the example of you see the donkey of the guy broken down under his burden. You're not going to leave him. You're going to go and help your enemy, this one who hates you, to rescue him. You're going to take action for their good. Do you love like that? What are the whatabouts that you throw up in defense here? Remember, we we talked about that back in the beginning. That's a temptation with a verse like this, as you think. But what about this? What about that? What is it that you throw up as your shield to say, I don't have to do that. I don't have to love like that because you don't know what I got going on. Let's deal with some whatabouts, right? Number one, what about number one? Shouldn't we be angered by evil and oppose it rather than coddling it? We don't want to be soft on evil, do we? How does that jive with loving our enemies? Well, yes, it's right to be angry at the things that make God angry. We go through the Bible and you'll find commands to be angry at the things that God hates, at what he abhors. But that anger can be a dangerous place for sin to fester. Or even to hide under guise of righteousness. I'm going to give you a quote here from D.A. Carson once again, who says this. He says, moral indignation, even moral outrage, may on occasion be proof of love. Love for the victim, love for the church of God, love for the truth, love for God and his glory. Not to be outraged may in such cases be evidence not of gentleness and love, but of a failure of love. So there are times when anger and outrage at things that are grossly unjust can be evidence of love. We just talked about Hitler earlier. If you're not angry over what happened to six million Jews in the Holocaust, something is wrong with your love meter. Like that's not, going soft on Hitler isn't love, it's lack of love for the six million people who met their deaths because of him. And so moral outrage can be loving. It can be appropriate. But listen to where Carson goes from here. He says, this is where our motives can become thoroughly confused, not to say corrupted. Because the line between moral outrage for the sake of God and his people and immoral outrage because I am on the opposite side of a debate, that line is painfully thin. On the issue, I may even be right in my heart, I may be terribly wrong precisely because I am less motivated by a passion for the glory of God and the good of his people than for vindication in a wretched squabble with a few individuals. There should be anger and outrage at evil, but it's very, very easy for our sinful fallen hearts to take that and go in a bad direction. So be very, very careful with using that as an example to treat someone in a way that God would have you not to treat them. So the next time you're angry at a group of people for something that they do or believe, maybe something they did to you, ask yourself, does your anger motivate you to pray for them? Pray for those who persecute you. That's the command that we have when they are doing wrong to you or others. Do you pray for them? Does it motivate you to want to pray for them, to see them come to know Jesus? Does your anger drive you to a bigger love for God and a stronger desire to follow his commands? If that's true, then you're probably on the right path. Or does your anger motivate you to want to see your opponents embarrassed, humiliated, or shamed? If it's the latter, it's a pretty good indication that while you may be right on the issue, you're wrong in your heart. You're not following the command of Jesus here. What about number two? Doesn't this kind of love for enemies make us soft? Won't people take advantage of us if we are like this? Won't it make us soft? Well, maybe. I mean, we're following a Savior who was beaten, tortured, and executed. So that's always on the table. That's always a possibility. If we're following Him and doing what He does, we could very well end up like Him. No servant is greater than His master. We don't do this because It works. We do it because our God, who declares the end from the beginning, calls us to it. Like, if I'm writing the script on how to help us in the church, how to help Christians get ahead in the world, I'm not going to write this, but I'm not the one in charge, and I'm not the one who knows and sets the future. I'm not the author of history. We need to trust that it's not up to me to rack up wins or losses, it's up to me to follow Jesus, and Jesus holds the future in his hands. He is bringing this thing towards a good and right and just conclusion, and he can be trusted. Here, Carson again. Christians do not restrict their moral horizons to immediate results. They make their ethical decisions from an eternal perspective. So you might get taken advantage of. You might be soft but you follow Jesus anyway. He got taken advantage of and saved the world by doing so. Why would we think that we're above him? All right, another what about, isn't God also a God of judgment, right? Won't God ultimately punish and destroy his enemies? So if I'm going to be like God, I should be doing that too, right? right. God's not just loving his enemies. He's also going to execute perfect justice and destroy his enemies. So I should follow God in that way too. Well, it's true that God is those things. It's true that God is going to execute perfect justice over his enemies forever. But while God commands us to love our enemies, he never commands us to wipe them out or execute our own justice. He says to follow him and be like him in this area. He does not tell us to go be like him in this other area because we would screw it up. He gives the sword of justice to civil governments to restrain evil. And most importantly, he tells us explicitly to trust him with ultimate justice. Romans twelve nineteen, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So God says, be like me, love your enemies. But as far as the vengeance thing, I I got that. Don't you worry about that one. Leave it to me, right? Because as Todd talked about last week with retaliation and retribution, we don't get it right. And the whole eye for eye, tooth for tooth, once you take the eye, you never feel satisfied. It's not like okay, I got my vengeance and now I'm good to go. And it, that's not how our sinful hearts work. We are sinful. We are fallen. God executes perfect justice. Leave that to Him. And so it's this shows why it's important before we go deciding what we can do in our quest to be like God. Make sure He call or make sure you follow what He's actually called you to do. Because He couldn't be a whole lot more explicit than beloved. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. I don't see any loopholes in that one. In the same way, he's very explicit when he says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Know your Bible, and know the way in which God calls you to follow and to emulate him. Carson, again, with the demise of Bible reading, what teaches us how to think God's thoughts after him? How on earth shall we love him with heart and mind if we don't increasingly know him? Know what he likes, what he loathes, know what he has disclosed, know what he commands, know what he forbids. Before saying, well, God told me to be like him in this way, and I see him doing this, so I guess I need to do that too, know what he calls you to do. Some things are revealed and are for us. Some things are for God and God alone. So know your Bible if you're going to follow this command rightly. Another what about? Aren't we called to confront people when they wrong us and call them to repentance? Like, aren't we supposed to call out sin? When we see it, how does that square with love? How does a sharp rebuke square with love? Well, don't equate love with niceness. We have this idea in our culture that, that if we're loving, that means we're all just going to be nice and kind and smiley and, and, and all of that. But that's, that's just a portion of love, that's not the broad spectrum of what it means to be loving. Carson, again, forbearance and genuine tenderheartedness are much tougher than niceness. And sometimes, tough love is confrontational. Sometimes love means being bold enough to confront a friend who you see wandering into sin. Because if you don't, they're going to wander further off. And so love, remember how we're defining love, love is an active volitional choice to seek their good. Sometimes love means redirecting, right? Parents, we see this. If you just let your kids do whatever they wanted to, that's not love. It would end up in a very, very bad place for all involved. It's the same way in your friendships, your relationships. Sometimes loving your enemies means confronting them. Sometimes loving your friends, your neighbor means confronting them as well. Why do I bring up all these whatabouts? Because I let's be real. This is not easy. Love is almost never easy. And love for enemies is absolutely never easy. There are tough questions we're going to have to work through. There are tough scenarios because there are tough people. And we are tough people. And so I don't want to think for a second that, you know, Jesus says, love our enemies. Let's just walk right out the door and it's going to be nice. I know I've got to love my enemies now, so we're going to be fine. It's going to be hard. And sometimes it's going to be hard just to figure out how to do it. So don't go it alone. Don't go it alone in that effort to love your enemies. Have brothers and sisters who you can lean on when your own moral compass isn't trustworthy. When emotion gets the better of you, when you can't see clearly through the fog because that person has wronged you so deeply. Have someone in your community group. Have a friend who you can call and say, I don't know what to do. How do I follow Jesus in this? How do I love my enemy? These quotations I've given by D.A. Carson are from his book called Love in Hard Places. And it's the most helpful book I have ever read on the topic of how to put this command, love your enemies, in action when it gets tricky and sticky. Uh, And so if you want to learn more and kind of unpack how this works, I cannot recommend that book to you highly enough. Love in Hard Places, D.A. Carson. So have friends that you can lean on. Go to the Word for clarity. Go pick up a book that will help you to think through these things. Don't trust your gut to get it right because your gut is going to lead you into sin more often than not. Disney has it wrong. Follow your heart isn't going to work because the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can understand it? That's what Jeremiah said. Most importantly, As you pursue this high calling, you must realize that you will never succeed on your own. You will never perfectly love your enemies just by trying harder this afternoon. Because something will get the best of you. Someone will get the best of you. Jesus did not come, did not just come to be your teacher in this area and these other areas that we've talked about over the last several weeks. He didn't just come to be your teacher in these areas, although he is that, as we've just heard this morning. And he didn't just come to be your example in these areas, although he is that as well. We can look at him and the way he responds going to the cross and see love for enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We get to watch it in action in his life. And that's so helpful. But he didn't just come for that either. He came to be your empowerment in these areas. He came to deliver you from your sin by the power of the gospel, by his life, his death, his resurrection. He lived, died, and rose again to rescue his enemies. His entire life was an expression of God's love for his enemies. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as he calls his enemies into his family, as he calls us out of our sin the death, the destruction that we deserve because of our sin, we can trust in him to help see us through. He's able to to overcome your sin. Whatever you have in your past, whatever guilt you drag around, the gospel can deal with that. And that's glorious and that's good and that's freeing. But it doesn't just apply to stuff in your past. It applies to your future too. There is nothing you will encounter in your walk with Christ that Christ is not sufficient to help you meet. And that includes loving your enemies. When you trust in him, when you trust in his work, his transforming work in your heart, he will continue to change and transform you and enable you to look more like him, enable you to love more like your dad, like your father who is in heaven most important thing that you can do we've tried to to talk about a lot of practical things that we can do and ways to think through this and have people help us but the most important thing that you can do is fix your eyes on Christ trust in him and know that he gives grace for every failure he will pick you back up when you fall down and he will strengthen you so that five years from now you will love your enemies better than you do today And I hope today you love your enemies better than you did five years ago. That's how the Christian life works. It is a process of sanctification in which he makes us more like Christ. So this morning, ask yourself, what corner of that process is this text shining a light on today? Where is God calling me to love differently because of what I've heard here from Jesus? And ask him for his help. And know that he will. Know that he's always faithful. Let's pray.